I thought he could have been a little more jazzy or in a dress. Yeah, I mean, he had sleeves rolled up, you know, his, his shoes were kind of worn. Where'd you get those shoes? Uh, you know, where do you shop? He was wearing an Armani tie. I said, you can't wear a silk shirt in Southern Illinois when it's 100 degrees playing golf. So this is Office 603, and this was... This is the office where he wrote Dreams of My Father. No, I think he wrote it lots of other places, too, but this is a place you could have found it. I'm at the University of Chicago with law professor Douglas Baird. He had an office down the hall from Barack Obama for over a decade. The door would usually be shut because he smoked, and you're not allowed to do that. (laughs) After Obama won the state Senate election, he reached out to Professor Baird, who by now was the dean of the U of C Law School. Barack calls me up and says, no, gee, I'd like to have dinner with you. We went to the Park Avenue Cafe. At first, Baird was vehemently against the idea of Obama going to work in Springfield, the state capital of Illinois. That's a pretty bad idea. You know, first you should be an academic, because we knew he was a great teacher at this point. You have no future in politics. Springfield is a cesspool of corruption. It's a complete dead end. But now that Obama was elected, he was thinking about his various obligations. Serving in the Illinois State Senate is a part-time job with a modest salary. He was also working at a downtown law firm and doing a little teaching at U of C. But Springfield is over 200 miles south of Chicago. That meant Obama had to cut down on his hours at the law firm, which created a problem for the new senator. He said, the the problem is Michelle will let me do it only if I can make the numbers work. And by the numbers, he meant what? Money for me. Turns out, Obama needed a raise. He came to this dinner wearing an Armani tie. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, that's not the tie I would have worn if I was asking an <laughs> academic for money. Nevertheless, the University of Chicago kind of bent over backwards for Obama. In exchange for taking on more substantial teaching obligations, Baird offered Obama a significant raise and the special title of senior lecturer. It's a distinction held by only a handful of faculty in the university's over 100-year history, and they were giving it to a man who had graduated from law school only five years earlier. What was it about Barack Obama that made you think this is a worthwhile investment? I and other people who interacted with him were utterly confident in his raw intelligence. No one doubted his charisma. No one doubted his magic. Usually the people who become president of the United States are people who, when they walk into a room, they are the one everyone looks at. And that has to happen before they're president. You have to be able to persuade people that you're the person in the room who really can make decisions and take charge. And he always portrayed that command. So in 1997... Obama is ready to walk into the state capitol building in Springfield, Illinois. He's handily won his first election, he's made the numbers work, and he's got a long list of things he wants to get done. And then he makes his next move. But things do not go as planned. That was one of my not-so-good ideas. (laughs) From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Jen White, and this is Making Obama. This is our podcast that takes a deep dive into the early political years of Barack Obama and looks at the forces that helped to make the first African-American president of the United States. Last time, Obama formed an important partnership. There is no Barack Obama without Michelle Obama. When I met Michelle, that all felt 
right to me. It fit. He launched his first campaign. I start raising money. I've got staff. We had to literally drag him away from people because once he got in the door, he was so engaging. And he made the difficult decision to knock an ally off the ballot. Alice was a good person and a good state senator. Some of the people never fully forgave me for knocking her out. Now, in this episode, the law professor goes to the state capitol. Snot-nosed kid that thinks he's going to come in here and tell us how to run things. They saw Barack as being snubbed. What does he know? We've been here. He's got to wait his turn. And he tries to escape Springfield by taking on a legend. I was one to say, this is the wrong race for you. Bobby's going to hand you your head on a silver platter. Part four, wait your turn. Tell us a little bit about that 13th district. Where is that? Typically, the way I, I describe it is it's where the Museum of Science and Industry is. In 1997, Barack Obama started his new gig in Springfield as the state senator representing Illinois' 13th district. This is Obama in 1998 on a local TV show called Inside Illinois Government. It encompasses Hyde Park, which includes uh, the University of Chicago. Uh, it's got some very poor neighborhoods like Englewood. I think that uh, it captures the great diversity that exists in the city of Chicago. Chicago and Springfield are worlds away from each other. Chicago is a one-party town. Springfield is not. Several of the members were wary of him. Dan Showman was assigned to be Obama's legislative aide in Springfield. Obama came down and he's like, I'm going to change the world. And Cranes interviewed him and he said, nothing's happening down here. Nobody's getting anything done. For Obama and Senate Democrats as a whole, this really wasn't the best time to get anything done. When Obama started, we were a beleaguered Democratic caucus. We were sort of the loser gang. In 1997, Republicans held the governor's office and a majority in the Illinois Senate, led by a very conservative Senate president. So that didn't help with Obama coming in all fresh-faced and ready to roll. In some ways, Springfield was exactly what I expected. Here's Obama speaking in 2001. What I was disappointed by was, number one, the degree of control that leadership exerted over the process by the time I arrived. That was uh, disappointing and frustrating for somebody like myself who was down there to work and, and discovered that most of my bills were going to get killed before <laughs> they had even been debated. So like anyone starting a new job, Obama had to meet his new colleagues and find potential allies. An obvious place to start was his fellow senators from Chicago. Hello? Hello. May I speak to Senator Hendon, please? Speaking. Hi, just to get started, I want to ask you about your nickname. Well, a beat reporter was trying to make me look bad because he was saying that I never met a camera that I didn't like, trying to call me a ham. So he called me Hollywood Hendon and it stuck and I took those lemons and made lemonade with it. By the time Obama arrived in Springfield, former Senator Ricky Hollywood Hendon was a prominent member of the Legislative Black Caucus. Obama's predecessor, State Senator Alice Palmer, had been a beloved member of that caucus. And the Obama campaign's decision to knock Palmer off the ballot didn't sit well with some of the African-American legislators from Chicago. I kicked people off the ballot as well. I would never kick off an ally. That's the only thing that bothered me. Somebody that drink wine over their house and eat their food and stab them in the back, I thought that was really raunchy. I loved Alice. Barack Obama was an unknown. 
That's the only way that he beat her. If not for that, he wouldn't have been the greatest president of all time. Funny how life works, huh? When we interviewed Hendon, he talked about how great of a president he thought Obama was. But back in Springfield, they weren't exactly friendly with each other. When he went to Springfield, it wasn't like he was welcomed with open arms. Obama's state Senate campaign manager, Carol Ann Harwell. There was a lot of haters. I don't think that that, all this love fest that they have. Now, he's the president. Of course, I'm going to love him now. But back then, hmm. Two months into his term, Obama introduced one of his first pieces of legislation on the Senate floor. It was a modest bill that would make a phone directory of community college graduates available to local employers. After Obama announced the bill on the floor, Senator Hendon kind of went after him about how poorly he thought the legislation was drafted. After some back and forth with Obama, Hendon ended the argument by saying this. Let me just say this. And to the bill. This is a reading of an excerpt from the official transcript. I seem to remember a very lovely senator by the name of Palmer, much easier to pronounce than Obama. And she always had cookies and nice things to say. And you don't have anything to give us around your desk. How do you expect to get votes? And, and you don't even wear nice perfume like Senator Palmer did. I definitely urge a no vote, whatever your name is. Every rookie gets attacked on their first bill, but it's playful. Everybody says something goofy about the bill, and the freshman is standing there looking like a deer with his eyes in the headlights, but you always haze the freshman. Obama spoke with the woman who helped him get to Springfield about some of his new colleagues. Because I would call him, he would be on the floor. <laughs> Carol Ann Harwell. And I said, what happened? And he was like, are you kidding? This buffoon never knew who he was talking about. But he really thought that there was some idiocy that was going on down there. He said it was like a fraternity, that they were away at school, they were away from mom and dad so they could clown, you know, that kind of thing. What did you observe about State Senator Obama's relationship with his African-American colleagues? When they saw Barack coming in, they were a little taken aback. Lisa Madigan is the current Illinois Attorney General. Back in the day, she served with Obama as a Democratic state senator. I think there was this feeling among the African-Americans from Chicago that Barack hadn't paid his dues. And quite frankly, with his Harvard Law degree, he really wasn't black enough. Southside political operator Al Kendall. I was in rooms and times when, you know, people would say things about Barack. That's true. He's an uppity nigga. I don't want to go into all the names, but it was it was along that vein. And to some degree, Barack has an air of confidence about himself that you want to say, well, hey, brother, you know, slow your roll for just a minute, okay? I mean, he was he was a little stiff. It's not bullying or anything like that, but it's easy to mess with him. Former state senator Donnie Trotter served in Springfield in the mid-90s. He and Ricky Hendon were close friends. We were in the lexicon of the community, frickin' frack. Obama was labeled as arrogant. Some senators nicknamed him Harvard and Senator Yomama. It's a different personality than one of people like myself and Ricky, who grew up in the neighborhood, of um, playing the dozens. Now, we didn't say nothing about his mother or nothing like that, but certainly we'll say things like, where'd you get those shoes? Or, you know, where do you shop? Ricky Hendon. So we respected Barack and thought he was, you know, smart, but... Um, he wasn't an Alice Palmer. 
All in all, it was a difficult situation for the new guy. Some of his colleagues in his own party are suspicious of him, and the other party has an iron grip on the Senate's agenda. How can he get anything done? Turns out, he needed to cross the aisle. So in the Illinois Senate chamber, you have a center aisle, with Democrats sitting to the left, as it were, and Republicans on the right. Barack and I were in the very back row on the Senate floor. Attorney General Lisa Madigan sat next to Obama in the Senate. One of the reasons you wanted to be in the back row is because that's where the leadership was. That's where the power players were. And so if you were in the back row, you had greater access to those people. But there was one other special benefit to the location of Obama's Senate seat. He had a seat which was positioned near, oh, I love this one, the men's room. And everybody had to pass him. Former Republican State Senator Kirk Dillard also served with Obama. The two men became friends. Dillard remembers Obama's willingness to work with the Republicans. The chamber sits in divided aisles, but there's only one men's room, and that's a good thing. Uh, Republicans and Democrats, you know, both have the same bodily functions, and uh, this is potty politics. But that seat clearly gave him um, access. Even with that access to his Senate colleagues on both sides of the aisle, Obama wasn't really able to get much done that first year in Springfield. But he had started building a relationship with the Democratic leadership in the Senate, Dan Showman. And then the first real big accomplishment was, as a freshman, they put him in charge of the caucus's position on negotiating campaign finance reform. So he was a partner in that. Kirk Dillard was the chief sponsor of the bill on the Republican side. He was a constitutional law professor. We had lots of First Amendment issues in a campaign finance reform bill. He knew these cases backward and forward. He was very valuable in in drafting the bill. Campaign finance reform required bipartisan support to pass. But privately, legislators in both parties hated the idea. Obama walked into the caucus and said, this is what we're going to do. And everybody booed him and yelled at him and they hissed him. And he goes, why why did they do that to me? And I said, well, you know, your position is not a very popular one. A wise, very formidable state senator from downstate Illinois had Brock pinned against the back wall of the chamber. And he said, son, you know, what do you know about campaign finance? Um, How much money do you have in your political fund? And the president uh, said, I don't know. And he said, well, I know how much you have in your fund. You have $800 in your fund. And you're going to tell us what to do when you only have $800 in your fund? But it was brought up to a vote. And though a lot of members might not have wanted it to pass, they didn't want to be seen publicly blocking something that appeared to reign in corruption either. Actually, they passed something very significant that banned the personal use of campaign funds by candidates and and a variety of other reforms. It was the first reform package that had passed in years. So it was a major comprehensive bill, and I still remember, I still have it, one of the major Chicago papers editorials was Hell Froze Over uh, in Springfield. It may not have won Obama many friends, but it was a victory. Attorney General Lisa Madigan. It makes it nearly impossible to get work done unless you've built relationships with people in the majority party. And that is something that Barack recognized very early on and was very adept at. 
Beyond the campaign finance reform accomplishment, Obama wanted to take on bigger issues like health care and juvenile justice reform. But progress on a simply bipartisan basis was slow. Seeing that he was eager to work hard, the Democratic leadership put him on some of the bigger committees, but... On all those committees, I have certain frustrations being in the minority. Obama in 1998. It's always better being in the majority. <laughs> I think there are a whole host of issues uh, that uh, I'd like to see moving in, in the legislature, but it's uh, slow going. Thank you oh, so God, much. No, no this talk is about fun. Springfield. <laughs> <laughs> My counselor says not to bring that up. <laughs> Tom Dart is currently the sheriff of Cook County. But during Obama's early years in the state Senate, Dart served as a Democratic member in the Illinois House of Representatives. So I didn't see Barack originally, but shortly thereafter, he and I came across each other and shared some similar thoughts and frustrations, I guess. About Springfield? (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. Neither one of us were down there saying, thank God I've got this and this helps my law practice or it's so cool to have someone call you senator or representative. Uh, No. I think underlying it was the notion that all of us are on this earth a limited number of hours and with that you want to be impactful. And I think both of us were very, very similarly of the opinion that this was not a place where you could be really impactful. I can certainly tell you that you can get things done, but it's not easy. Illinois Attorney General Lisa Madigan witnessed the toll that Springfield was taking on Obama. If you have a family, and particularly if you have a young family, the schedule of going back and forth to Springfield for the better part of six months during the year is very, very heavy. You're not there to support your family, you know, physically. And then the other side of that is you're not making a lot of money to support them financially either. In July 1998, the Obamas had Malia, their first child. Barack Obama was away from home a lot. The drive from Chicago to Springfield is three or four hours each way. And when he wasn't in session, Obama was working two other jobs. He had a problem with the fact that he was overloaded. Legislative aide Dan Showman. He was teaching law. He was a dad. He was practicing law. And he was a state senator. So all of those things combined led to it being very tough. And I think he was very frustrated. He really wanted to make a difference. He wanted to have an impact, and he knew that he could. And he wanted the ability to be able to do more. You know, it, it was a time when I was, I'd been at that point in the minority in the Senate for quite some time. Had been frustrated with what I could get done. When we sat down with former President Obama, he talked about how his early experience in Springfield drove him to make his next move. Some of it, I think, was just the impatience of a young man. That was one of the few times where I think I ran, not because I had an obvious rationale, but rather just because I wanted to just get moving uh, to, to get more stuff done. Coming up on Making Obama, We go back to Chicago for another race. What did you think about Barack Obama's decision to run against Bobby Rush? I thought it was eager beaver trying to jump into politics. After about three frustrating years in Springfield, Obama was looking for some new opportunities. He considered a potential run against Bobby Rush, 
a prominent black congressman in Chicago. I was one to say, this is the wrong race for you. You're going to lose your butt. Obama asked around for advice, and he spoke with Hermine Hartman, the editor and founder of Indigo, a magazine based in the South Side that focuses on the, quote, black urban agenda. Hartman didn't hold back. Bobby's going to hand you your head on a silver platter and trying to make him understand the why. You don't know what Bobby Rush means here. You must remember, Bobby is a panther. You all know Bobby as a congressman. I know Bobby as a panther who became a congressman. There's some real steps there. And you are not going to take them on. And I thought he was not black enough. Explain that. Well, Bobby is ingrained in the black community as a black American, as a black Chicagoan, as a black politician. I thought Barack was clueless on that. This is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Bobby Rush was a central figure in one of the defining moments of the civil rights era in Chicago. In Chicago today, two black panthers were killed as police raided a panther stronghold. The 1969 killing of Black Panthers Fred Hampton and Mark Clark by the Chicago police. African-American activists called it an assassination. Panther Bobby Rush charges it was the raiding party, not the Panthers, who did the shooting. After the killings, Bobby Rush became the Illinois Black Panther Party's acting chairman, and he led the charge against the Chicago police. Murder. The pig murdered uh, Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton while he lay in bed. I prove it. I prove it to the world. The police began targeting Rush, and he was eventually in prison for six months on a weapons charge. After his release, he left the Black Panther Party and later went into politics. In 1992, Rush was elected to the U.S. Congress in a predominantly African-American district on Chicago's South Side. It was the seat that had been held by Mayor Harold Washington. Before I was a member of the Congress, I was marching and I was protesting and I was fighting for black people all across this city and all across the state and all across this country. This is Congressman Rush speaking at a community event in the mid-90s. So I got some credentials that go really way back even before I was elected to office in the first place. Right back, will you insert? Oh, yeah, I'm comfortable here. Yeah, that looks good. Right, okay. About a decade ago, Rush's voice became labored after he successfully fought a rare form of cancer in his salivary gland. Because Chicago is a very political city. Always have been, always will be. When we interviewed Congressman Bobby Rush, we talked about his early political career. I put my life on the line, made tremendous sacrifices. I fight for black people. Still do. I'm, I'm a man of courage. So I speak out and speak up. A man of courage who speaks out and speaks up. In 1999, this was the man who a frustrated 38-year-old state senator with a funny name decided to take on. That was one of my not-so-good ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, didn't, Didn't really think that one through. One major reason that Obama thought Rush was beatable was because of the 1999 Chicago mayoral election between Rush and Richard M. Daley. Daley apparently won with stronger support in the black community than he has ever had in an election. On election night, Mayor Daley won big. Bobby had just run against Rich Daley and done very poorly, including uh, in his own congressional district. It seems as though I have lost uh, this election 
but I want you to know that I don't consider myself a loser. After Russia's defeat, Obama and another state senator smelled blood in the water. You don't go into races thinking you're going to lose. Former state senator Donnie Trotter also decided that he'd challenge Bobby Rush in the next congressional election. I listened to the voices of my friends and to my own voice that it was time for a change. You know, I felt that I could do a better job than Bobby. And Obama did have some evidence that he could win. I had just done some sort of ragtag, half-baked polling <laughs> by some internal staff and said, wow, these numbers really look good. It was moderately scientific. Obama's aide in Springfield, Dan Showman, helped conduct the telephone poll. We identified ourselves as students taking a poll, which was half true. A couple of us were students. It provided results that showed that Bobby Rush had some cracks in the armor, especially among white voters. I mean, I thought the results were indicative. Poll results in hand, Obama spoke to some friends to get their takes. You nuts? Really? I didn't like it. I didn't I didn't want it to happen. Obama's first campaign manager, Carol Ann Harwell, thought he was being a little overconfident. You know, you got big all of a sudden, you know, you running you writing all the laws down in Springfield and you know what you're doing now, I know where the washroom is, I can cross the aisle, blah, blah, this, that, another. Okay, you don't swole up like that, you get about to get hurt. You need to wait your turn. Nevertheless, Obama began assembling a new team. He asked Southside political operator Al Kendall to join the campaign. Come on with it. Let's put the gloves on. If you're looking for the next generation, when do you want the next generation to begin to step up? He represented hope. I was drinking the Obama juice. Dan Showman became Obama's campaign manager. To some extent, we were... David versus Goliath, and it was exciting. There was never any confusion it was going to be difficult. Then Illinois State Representative Tom Dart joined the campaign. I feel very strongly about him and what he's about, and that's what you do. You support people you feel strongly about. Now, Obama had someone in mind to run his media campaign. Obama always wanted Axelrod. I wouldn't have been hired if Axelrod had taken that uh, congressional race. David Axelrod would later help Obama become president. But for this race, he declined. So Axelrod's former partner, Chris Souter, became Obama's media consultant. Souter helped him devise a strategy. We were trying to draw the contrast between Obama, who in a very short time had a very robust record of accomplishment in Springfield, versus Bobby Rush, whose record in Congress was very thin. That was how we tried to frame the race. Then there was the money. I had a number of black clients who were very successful in business. Obama's friend from his early law firm days, Newton Minow, started fundraising. And I called each of them, asking them for a contribution for Barack. I raised exactly zero, Z-E-R-O, dollars. And I got a universal answer from each of them. Let him wait his turn. Obama's close friend, Marty Nesbitt, became the campaign's finance chair. For whatever reason, I mean, the African-American community viewed Barack Obama as an outsider. I guess we didn't anticipate that. When I sat down with Bobby Rush, I asked him about the prospect of running against Obama. Did you consider State Senator Obama and Senator Donnie Trotter both in that race? Right. Did you consider either of them serious threats at that time? 
No. Because Bobby was so far ahead to start with and was not that vulnerable, I don't think that there was ever the need for him to wade in too hot and heavy. I think he could safely ignore me most of the time. (laughs) And the reason Rush could ignore Obama had everything to do with how familiar the voters were with him and not with Obama. Early on in the race, media consultant Chris Souter joined Obama on a visit to the district. It was a beautiful fall weekend, and we kind of wandered around the district and helped churches that were putting together packages for constituents. I remember walking around noticing that practically nobody recognized their state senator. So we announced the race, and we had raised enough money at that point to do a real poll where we discovered that uh, Bobby had something like a 90% name recognition and a 70% approval rating in his district, and I had something like an 11% name recognition. High approval ratings among the 11% who knew me. (laughs) So that was the battle facing the Obama campaign. But they forged ahead and started making some headway. Barack Obama is here tonight, State Senator Barack Obama. This is Obama on cable access TV in 1999. If you're interested in volunteering with our campaign, the number is 773-84-OBAMA. You have a website, don't you? And we have a website as well. But then, early in the campaign, something tragic happened. uh, My opponent will be Congressman Bobby Rush, and uh, although this is... uh, Uh, tape show, I I wanted to uh, first start off by expressing uh, uh, my concern and sympathy uh, to Congressman Rush for uh, the recent uh, tragedy where his son got shot. Uh, Our prayers are with him, and I'm hoping that uh, uh, everything uh, turns out for the best there. I hope so, Um, too. You know, my uh, my background, as you know, uh, is basically at the grassroots level. On October 18th, 1999, Bobby Rush's 29-year-old son, Huey Rich, was shot on the South Side. The two men who attacked him thought Rich was holding money for a drug dealer. The men robbed him while Rich lay bleeding in the street. That was a huge story in Chicago, uh, rightly so. Uh, I think people very much uh, felt for Bobby in that tragedy. Huey Rich died in the hospital four days later. The funeral for his son was held at Trinity, my home church. Once that happened, and we actually suspended campaigning for a time out of respect, the prospect of of me uh, gaining any significant ground uh, was low. There there was a lot of empathy in allowing the incumbent that we were trying to beat to get some peace about himself. Both Obama and Donnie Trotter temporarily suspended their campaigns. I'm not going to hit this guy with this hammer. I mean, he's already dazed, so no one really wanted to get into a knockout punch. Obama's campaign manager, Dan Showman. And it definitely changed some people's opinion of Bobby, and actually Bobby then came out and changed his position on gun control after that happened, and it really had an impact on people, so that hurt. It was pretty difficult. Media consultant Chris Souter. We couldn't really attack Bobby Rush without people sympathizing with him more. The murder of Huey Rich wasn't something that the Obama campaign could have predicted. But what happened next? They saw it coming. That incident was the one time when I doubted Obama's commitment to his political career. In the middle of the campaign, Obama's part-time job in the state Senate needed his attention. 
But this call to come to Springfield was happening around the same time as Obama's annual trip to Hawaii to visit his maternal grandmother. She helped raise Obama and was his only surviving parental figure. Barack is a family man, and it is, you know, hard to kind of get through to Barack. Al Kendall. We said, look, Barack, you need to keep your ass right here. Don't go on vacation. Obama went on vacation. He reasoned that it wouldn't matter much. While Obama was over 4,000 miles away, Republican Governor George Ryan was trying to muster support to pass the Safe Neighborhoods Act. It would have made illegal gun possession a felony in Illinois. The governor wanted to schedule a vote. I mean, I remember being in the office and I said, you know, you can still make a flight. And he said, okay, I'll check into it. Another problem? Obama's one-year-old daughter, Malia, had the flu. Obama decided to stay in Hawaii for one more day, and he missed the vote. George Ryan walked out on the floor and says, where's Obama? That's how George talked. Where's Obama? That just set it off. So all of a sudden, then the phone started ringing. The Safe Neighborhoods Act failed by three votes in the Senate. Obama was not the only person that wasn't there. But again, it was a distraction. So it was just one more chink in the armor. And then we had to spend days explaining to people, no, Obama does support gun control. No, Obama does support the Safe Neighborhoods Act. In the Chicago Tribune, an editorial called the senators who missed the vote, quote, gutless sheep. Obama's opponents pounced. You know, that was a very important vote. Former Senator Donnie Trotter was there for the vote. Every vote we take impacts on everyone in this state. You're expected to be there. That's can be viewed as dereliction of the promise you made. Did he make the right decision? I think probably yes. But did people handle it well? No. Um, And was he thrown under the bus? Absolutely. An unexpected tragedy and a PR disaster did not help the Obama campaign. But besides those two events, throughout the 2000 congressional race, there was an undercurrent of talk about State Senator Obama. There were still those strains and continue to be strains within Chicago's African-American community of, of, of trying to figure out who's who and what's what. You know, are there people pulling the strings behind the scenes? You know, Barack's from Hyde Park. Is he a front for the powers that be? I've always had a problem with white liberals. So did you feel in that race like State Senator Obama was thinking for himself, or did you feel like he was... A- oh, no, they, they, they encouraged him to run against me. They thought that this Harvard-educated lawyer, tall, handsome, light-skinned, looking good, they thought that they could take me out. To this day, Bobby Rush thinks that the candidacy of a, quote, Harvard-educated lawyer, tall, handsome, light-skinned, looking good, was a plot by white liberals. That suspicion about Obama's backers seeped into the congressional race. It was a whispering behind the back thing. Obama's campaign manager, Dan Showman. There was things that I heard were said at the bars and things that I heard were said about me. And, you know, people would say Obama has a white campaign manager and a, a white mother. You know, it's racial politics. We had printed up some brochures. Obama's media consultant, Chris Souter. And I remember passing them out, and uh, some African-American constituents were relieved to see that his wife was also African-American, so much that they commented on it. 
field coordinator Al Kendall. You get any number of black people who just said that Barack, one, was not black enough and had not paid his dues long enough, that he was really supported by the Jews, that he was supported by outside interests, and that he didn't represent you know, the heart and soul of African-Americans. Rush subtly encouraged these whispers over Obama's blackness. He said things like, Obama only read about the civil rights movement in books. And quote, he went to Harvard and became an educated fool. I thought it was a brilliant move by Bobby Rush. <laughs> Obama's friend from his community organizing days, Reverend Alvin Love. Barack still had this, you are not from here persona. And Bobby Rush played it to the hilt. He painted Barack as an outsider, somebody who was still trying to find his way. And so basically what Bobby was saying is, why would you put somebody in the office who's trying to find his way when you got somebody here who already knows the way? For the people close to Obama, this debate about his blackness was hard to watch. I couldn't stand it. I thought it was terrible for one black man to question the blackness of another one. That was horrible. I felt horrible about that. Carol Ann Harwell. He wasn't black enough, and they talked about Barack Obama, your mama. They talked about his mother. It was just an ignorant kind of a campaign for me. When people said that he wasn't black enough, explain what they meant. When you have to defend the fact that you're black, that means you got a problem. Part of his campaign stump was, I have a hard time getting a cab just like other black folks. Whenever you got to say that to black folks, then you ain't black. How challenging was it for you to to have your blackness challenged during this race? You know, I mean, the truth of the matter is it's not something that I was particularly bothered by. By that time, I'm I'm a grown man and I'm pretty secure in who I am and what my values are, what I believe is important. I was very confident that there was no one way to be black. So that that discomfort or insecurity around am I black enough uh, or not, you know, I had kind of left that behind by the time I was 26, 27. So by the time I run uh, for Congress, I see it as a strategy, but it's not one that uh, either bothered me or, for that matter, I think was particularly effective. You know, politics is can be complicated and subtle, but sometimes it's really simple. What was hard running against Bobby Rush is people just didn't know who I was. Uh, I did have an unusual name, and he was well-known. And to try to narrow that gap in familiarity among the voters, the Obama team launched their media campaign. I want to talk about some of the radio spots you were kind enough to send us. Do you remember the ad Blackout? I do remember that ad. (laughs) Media consultant Chris Souter produced Obama's radio ads. I've only listened to these spots twice since 2000. Basically, the ad was playing off a problem happening on the South Side at the time, a series of blackouts under the electric company ComEd. Oh, man, there go the lights again. Another blackout. I'm tired of this. When's somebody going to do something? Obama. Say what? The man says what? So we were trying to elevate his name recognition. State Senator Barack Obama. He's Who are you targeting with these ads? Where were they playing? 
They were playing on black radio. Barack Obama, Democratic candidate for Congress. As a community organizer, Obama fought to make sure residents in Roseland and Ogdale Gardens received their fair share of services. Barack Obama, as a lawyer, Obama fought for civil rights and headed up Project Vote, registering over 100,000 minority voters. Barack Obama. Here come the lights. ComEd must have heard from that Senator Obama. That's Obama. Barack Obama. And they'll be hearing a lot more from him. Barack Obama. They also did some ads that dramatized the issues that Obama ran on. It could happen to you or to someone you love. Stop by police for no apparent reason, except that you fit a racial profile secretly used by police. It's called racial profiling. Racial profiling is not only wrong and degrading, it's dangerous and can lead to unexpected confrontations. America's healthcare system locks out too many people. I'm fighting to change that. Brock, we need a congressman like you who would do more than just talk. Barack Obama, Democrat for Congress, new leadership that works for us. Paid for by Obama for Congress 2000. Do you think he enjoyed cutting these ads? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Especially the closer we got to the election. I, I didn't get the feeling that he was enjoying anything. He complained and whined a lot during the congressional race. Remember, he was still driving himself. He's like, I don't know where you guys are sending me. Obama's campaign manager, Dan Showman. He was just constantly complaining about being tired. There was actually a point towards the end of the campaign where he had, like, serious fatigue. We were a little concerned about him. He, he and I were, were arguing a lot. I don't think we held it personally against each other. But he was difficult, and he was difficult to be managed. It was hard for him to give up control. There were a lot of key decisions that he wouldn't agree with, and, and he just stood firm. For example, I want him to run as Barack Barry Obama. Uh, I'll probably go to my grave still standing by that argument, but nope, wouldn't do it. He said, Barack's my name. He didn't say that Hussein was his middle name, but he said, Barack's my name, so I'm going to run as Barack. I mean, we argued and argued and argued. He also never let us use the O apostrophe Obama on the Irish stuff. I'm not Irish and it's not the right way to use my name. So we just didn't do it. He didn't want to play that game. He could have, but he didn't. Speaking of the Irish stuff, primary elections in Illinois normally happen in late March. So around that time, there's a tradition in Chicago besides dyeing the river green, and that's for Chicago politicians to go marching. First time he marched in the South Side Irish parade, I took him and he was very concerned because there's maybe, you know, two black people on the parade. 400,000 people, the largest neighborhood parade in the United States. I gave him a green hat, a green vest, and uh, he goes, I'm going to wear this? He goes, am I going to be okay? Am I going to be safe? I said, you'll be fine. He marched with Tom Dart, who's now the sheriff. And so I'm always in it because it's in my neighborhood. Tom Dart worked as a coordinator for Obama in the 2000 race. He also might have freelanced a bit on some campaign swag. It was so funny because we went and got all these um, buttons printed up that had a big shamrock on it, and then it had O apostrophe Obama. Everybody wanted one, and we ran out of them because everybody was like, oh, my God, who is this guy? He's, is he, what, what county in Ireland is he from? I was like, oh, we'll work on that later. Uh, <laughs> honestly, he was like, I don't want to say the hit of the parade, but close to it. I mean, he worked those crowds so hard, and um, he met so many people, and people just loved him. The enthusiasm was in, incredible. We had such large crowds of people, and he was being so positively received. Dart had never seen such energy for a politician before. And maybe that would translate to votes. Maybe this thing could be winnable after all. 
even Bobby Rush got nervous. Bobby Rush had a tradition on the Sunday before an election. He'd wander the district in the middle of the night to try to get a sense for the electorate. At about 2 o'clock in the morning, he went into Tom Dart's primarily white Irish Catholic 19th Ward, and he saw a lot of Obama for Congress signs. That alerted me, and that's what I was kind of unsure about the outcome. Coming up on Making Obama, election night. A couple of weeks before the 2000 congressional primary, the Chicago Tribune endorsed Obama over the incumbent Bobby Rush. The endorsement said, quote, Obama is smart and energetic. He has fresh ideas on governing, and he understands that he would become a spokesman for African-American concerns nationally. You know, we, 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 we've, we started to gain some momentum. Obama's campaign manager, Dan Showman. People started to realize who he was. We were on the radio. There was a sense that there was some support gaining. We were starting to feel some energy. When election night happened and I was sitting in the control room, which was the campaign office, essentially, everybody was at the party. And Obama was like, where are you? I said, well, we're gathering results and we lost. <laughs> and he said, we lost. I said, we lost. We, we didn't lose by a little. We lost by a lot. Brock called me up and says, yeah, Tom, you know, but, you know, we didn't win. Sheriff Tom Dart. I just was like, no, no, no. We'll, we, you know, no, no. He's like, no, Tom, we're not, we're not going to win. And I was like, no. But he's like, no, Tom, I just got killed in certain areas. You know, it's just the numbers aren't there. And he started telling me about some of the numbers like, oh, my God. Obama was favored by whites, but lost big among African-Americans. Rush beat Obama by 30 points, around 61 percent to 30. Losing isn't fun. Former state Senator Trotter got around 7 percent of the vote. Even with our combined votes, Bobby still could have brought a third person in the race. <laughs> Bobby beat the heck out of us. Obama barely won his own neighborhood, with just over half of the vote in Hyde Park. There was sort of this pathetic kind of post-election party. Everybody was kind of down in the dumps. Obama's friend and campaign finance chair, Marty Nesbitt. And there were like balloons on the floor and confetti, and it was kind of a sad-looking situation. Magazine editor Hermine Hartman sums up the race like this. Harvard degreed versus streetwise. I think he thought, I'm so bright and I'm so advanced. I think he misread the people of the community. And I think he misread Bobby. When I sat down with Bobby Rush, we talked about that election night. How did that make you feel? Victorious. Nearly 20 years later, Congressman Rush is still in office. We got our ass kicked. He did more than just defeat me, he spanked me. I got spanked. He was very humbled by it. And it was good to hear that he was humble. I said, I told you. Obama's first campaign manager, Carol Ann Harwell. See, that's what you get. You need to sit down, little boy, until this time, your time come. Did he talk about leaving politics at that point? Yeah. What did he say? You know, I done spent my time. I'm wasting my time. I could have been making this kind of money. I'm a lawyer. I could have done this. And you know how you care for somebody so much and their passion has been extinguished? Why am I doing this? Because he was truly hurt. 
Obama's post-election party was at the Hyde Park Ramada Inn, the same place where he'd launched his political career almost five years earlier. During his concession speech, Obama expressed his feelings about his future by saying, quote, I've got to make assessments about where we go from here. We need a new style of politics to deal with the issues that are important to the people. What's not clear to me is whether I should do that as an elected official or by influencing government in ways that actually improve people's lives. How much of a, of a question was there around whether he was going to stay in political life? Well, I think there was a big question. Marty Nesbitt. He knew he had options, and I think he, you know, he's aware that he had a family, and he had to figure out how to make sure that, that they were cared for. Is this the end of Obama's career? We don't know. Dan Showman. He very strongly contemplated giving up. In fact, he was up for a job heading the Joyce Foundation. He was interviewed to run the prestigious, progressive Joyce Foundation. It paid a lot of money, several hundred thousand dollars, Coa Country Club memberships, Executives Club. And I was so excited. He said, Chief, if I get this job, you're going to be the chief of staff. So I woke up that morning. I said, finally, all this work I've put in is going to come to fruition. You know, all these years of toiling. And he called me and he said, you know, I got in there and I didn't want the job. I, I, I couldn't do it, so I kind of did a bad job on the interview. And I said, you're an asshole. I really wanted this, and now look where we are. And he said, I'm sorry, Chief. I said, well, it is what it is. So I felt like he was close, but ultimately, if he didn't feel like he was part of the game or relevant, which is really what Michelle knew, that he had to always be relevant, then he wasn't satisfied. So ultimately, he couldn't do it. What do you think drove that need in him? to feel relevant? That's a good question. I don't know. Besides the magnitude of the loss to Bobby Rush, there was another consequence of the campaign that created a real problem for the Obamas. Barack was pissed off. Barack was pissed off. First and foremost, because Michelle was pissed off. Obama's field coordinator, Al Kendall. Michelle, no uncertain terms. Let it be known. You know, we had to get this together. The failed congressional campaign left the Obamas with a personal debt of about $60,000. She was really mad about the fact of them being in debt. And Barack made it perfectly clear that any other campaign, there would be no debt. He would not, you know, disappoint Michelle. So that was one big lesson learned. And though continuing in public life was an open question for the Obamas, in Chicago more broadly, there was a feeling that Obama's political career wasn't over yet. Media consultant Chris Souter. Normally, the newspapers write obituaries for the losers in a race like that. But in reading some of the editorials, you almost would have thought that Obama won because they talked about what a great future he had. And I remember myself telling Dan Showman a couple of days after the race, I said, this guy's going to be president one day. And he says, president, we can't even get him elected to Congress. (laughs) (laughs) There were a lot of people that believed in him and believed in his potential. Those people weren't dissuaded by the fact that he lost. Marty Nesbitt. I think people continued to believe in him. What do you think he learned from that loss? Well, I I think he 
learned that he had a broad appeal. But I think the support that we got in the non-African American community in that race, how he was embraced as a candidate helped us sort of figure out that in a broader statewide race, he'd be pretty tough to beat. It was a bad race objectively for him, but I think more than anything, he learned how difficult big time politics was. Everything had come pretty easily for him up to that point. In short, I think Obama learned how to win by losing. When I sat down with former President Obama, he talked about the lessons he learned from that 2000 congressional race. You know, it taught me about running at the federal level, about the importance of campaigning not based on a bunch of white papers and policy prescriptions, uh, but telling a story and and listening to people. You know, it it forced me to become a better public speaker, uh, less professorial, although there's some who would argue that I'm still uh, too professorial. And dealing with the media, I think, in in a more high-profile way. So I probably would not have ended up being successful in my Senate race had I not run that race. Though he lost by an extraordinary margin, that race against Bobby Rush remains the only electoral defeat that Obama has ever experienced. The interesting thing that happened, though, was this small silver lining, which is towards the end of the race, when I'd be shaking hands in front of a supermarket or knocking on doors or seeing folks at train stations or churches or what have you, you'd have folks in the African-American community, some elderly ladies, and you'd give them your literature and they'd say, oh, honey, you know, we think you're a very nice young man. We, we think you'd be uh, excellent someday. We just didn't think it was your turn yet. But you're going to have your day. And that was an interesting insight so that even though we did badly on election day, it actually gave me more confidence that if I were to run not against such a well-known African-American politician who had been around for so long, but rather if I were running in a race in which the African-American community could mobilize behind me, that I could get that vote. There's one more thing about Obama's story in 2000. That same year, Obama went to the Democratic National Convention held in Los Angeles. He wanted to cheer himself up after losing to Bobby Rush and finding himself in debt. When he landed at the airport and went to rent a car, his credit card was declined. And when he finally made it to the convention, he was given credentials that only permitted him to walk around the halls. He wasn't allowed to enter the actual convention space to watch any of the speakers on the main stage. Four years later, at the next Democratic National Convention, Obama would give the keynote address. Tonight is a particular honor for me because, let's face it, my presence on this stage is pretty unlikely. So in those few years, what happened? Next time on Making Obama, The Comeback. He finds his political godfather. He said, you have the power to make a United States senator. I said, do you know of anybody I can make? And Brock said, me. 
<laughs> he gained some supporters uptown. The fact that I saw that in him, I'm sure he saw it in himself. And he takes a stand. I remember talking with David Axrod about the speech and saying, Gee, did, did he really have to call it a dumb war? Making Obama is a production of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Jen White. The producer is Colin McNulty. The executive producer is Brendan Banizak, with editing help from Kevin Dawson of Whistledown Productions. Really special thanks to James Edwards, Joe Dassault, Candice Mattel-Khan, Tony Arnold, Steve Bynum, Justin Bull, Steve Edwards, B. Aldridge, and our new intern, Stefania Gomez. Our digital editor is Trisha Bobita. And if you want even more Making Obama, go to wbez.org slash Obama.